Father, it's so good to celebrate with your church, your people, who you've called out of darkness and to walk in light. You've given us your identity, hope in Jesus. As the scriptures say, we're robed in righteousness, covered, loved because of Jesus. I ask today that hearts would be changed. I ask that lives would see your light and walk in that and be encouraged by you. Do what only you can do, God, not by man's words, but by your word. May you encourage, may you work, and may you make things new. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, at some point in your life, I know at many points in my life, I've had this question that comes just flooding down at me. I think the first time it happened is when I was in the seventh grade. I used to uh, go to this public school where I knew lots of kids, and in middle school, uh, my parents thought it was best to put me, a blossoming adolescent, in a very strict religious kind of school. And there was this girl there. Her name was Dana Birchfield. Remember her to this day. And it was the first week of school of seventh grade, and I walked up to Dana in front of all my friends, and I said, Will you be my girlfriend? (laughs) She looked at me, and I swear there was ice in those eyeballs. (laughs) No. (laughs) And as a seventh grader, you cannot come back from that in front of your friends. (laughs) You just kind of hang your head low and walk away, and you ask this question, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I got out of seventh grade and went to a public school in eighth grade where I tried out for the basketball team, and I had been on my AAU teams uh, doing well and starting, and I tried out, and I didn't make varsity in eighth grade. I was put on the JV team, and once again, I was asking myself, what's wrong with me? And those may seem like trivial events in a young person's life. But they were the beginning of a narrative that I was writing in my own script or my own story of constantly experiencing the world around me, looking at it, and then finding ways to navigating and asking myself questions like, how can I change? Or is there something that needs to change in me? Or what is wrong with me? Now, without a show of hands, no shame, no embarrassment, but I wonder how many of us ask that same question today. Maybe it's because over the last few years or decade, no matter how many advancements there's been made in our society, political changes, technology, we still feel the same letdowns and problems and dilemmas of this world. We lose jobs. We have heartbreak. There's divorce. There's weight loss or too much weight gain, and it's unhealthy on either side because of how we have this world perceiving us and what we think we need to project to it. And we're left with this question of, what's wrong with me? Some of you, you walk in here and you go, Brett, that's a bit cynical. My life's actually pretty darn good. Got a great latte this morning. The music was awesome, right? We got to engage, and things are going wonderful, and 
She didn't say no, she or he said yes, and we're getting married, or we're having more children, and things are great. And yet, at times, even in all the goodness, there can still be a nagging in our souls of something's not right. What's wrong with me? Why don't I feel like I have enough? Why do I feel like I achieve but never get respect? Why do I feel like people don't value me even when I put myself out there and do so much for them? And we can have all this success in life and all of these great things happening and still ask ourselves this same question, what's wrong with me? And this is where I want to go with this message this morning. Every human, every person, we're interpreting life through stories that we tell ourselves, these narratives. And stories are vital to us for making sense out of the world around us. We're all, as Paul Tripp says, we're all meaning makers, hardwired to interpret the events going on around us and then putting those into a story format to make sense of our lives. And each and every person in here is looking for something bigger than themselves to grab onto, to attach to, that's larger than you, in order to make sense of what's going on. We call this a meta-narrative, this overarching grand theme or story of humanity, why we're here, what we're doing. Is there or is there not a God? Do I do not, do I or do I not belong? We have these large stories, and in our culture, these narratives are plentiful. You learned about them early on as a kid. For example, you maybe have studied the American dream. It's a narrative of if you do these things, then you'll be a happy person. In our culture, we have a lot of rags to riches kinds of stories that we want to attach ourselves to, or from nobody to TikTok or Instagram famous all of a sudden. I'm somebody because I have numbers behind me. We have these narratives where we watch stories of the lonely, non-popular person. I think like 10 things I hate about you. Anybody remember that movie? And all of a sudden, they become the most popular or great person in the school. Weak to powerful. And these are narratives that Hollywood, that people in politics, that news articles, they put out there. And we want to actually attach ourselves to similar kinds of narratives. Because we all have in our culture a longing for newness or renewal. What's wrong with me is the question. The desire is then newness or renewal. I think of a very popular song right now, Chris Stapleton, Starting Over. Anybody familiar with that? This whole idea that him and this wife or girlfriend, they're going to have the road open up and they're going to the coast where their friends are at and we're starting over and I'll be your four-leaf clover and you can be my lucky penny and we're going to make things great. Or if you grew up in the 90s, uh, you might remember a little sitcom uh, starring Will Smith, West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playgrounds where I spent most of my days. You, got, you guys know it? That whole story is a renewal story. There was the fresh prince, Will Smith, in trouble in Philly. He gets a fresh start in a fresh town in a wealthy family to do what? To make something of his life. And throughout that story... You see the ups and downs of a kid from poverty and trouble coming into Bel Air. We attach ourselves to these kinds of narratives, and we use them to make sense of our lives because we desperately want renewal. Um, 
Believe it or not, I've pastored now for almost 19 years. I know. Whoa. I started way too young. <laughs> Let me just tell you that now. <laughs> like, what were you thinking? Okay. In that time, I have seen countless numbers of people sit in my office. Um, I'm, not, I'm not kidding when I say easily into the thousands. I truly mean that. Conversations over and over again. And one of the desires that people have over and over again is for newness. If I could just take the last 10 years of my life back, right? If I could just get, as my kids have been pointing out to me, my hair back. I'm starting to really lose it. If you sit behind me, I'm sorry. If I could just get that back and look fresh, look great. If I could just have my old face back, my old body. If I could just be what I used to be, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. And these kinds of narratives are the stories that we want to attach our lives to. And yet time and time again, we're disappointed by them. And this morning, I want to suggest a better narrative. I want to suggest a better story to attach our lives to. Here it is in Luke chapter 24. This is a story of renewal, of restoration, of hope. This is a story of resurrection, And when we consider what we're about to read, you have to remember that there had been these disciples who had been following Jesus around for three years. And at this point, all but three had truly, or two, whatever, dispersed John and his uh, Mary and then the other Mary that was there at the crucifixion. Everybody else has bailed. And they're hopeless, and it's dark as we sing. And there's just this sadness that we thought you were the Messiah. We thought you were going to come and reign and conquer. We thought you were going to bring renewal into our lives. And it was silent, as we looked at on Good Friday with Ron as he shared the word. In chapter 24 of Luke, it says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to be an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had just happened. What happened is resurrection. Now, this word resurrection in the Greek is a common term, anastasis, which actually means to rise up. This is simply what is being talked about here. There is this rising up, and that's what Jesus had done. But here is what's really important. It was not just a rising of his spirit and somehow his spirit is floating around now in the world. There's a physical, actual resurrection. And this is important and key because it was Greek thinking that really separated out the body from the soul. But if you get into Genesis and 
Hebraic kind of thinking. When God created man, he created him as wholeness, as one. And there was never intended to be some kind of separation of the two. But in rejecting of God's way, sin brings death. And because of that, there is then a decaying body that's going to have to be renewed at some point. And there's this inner man that's being renewed by God. That when we die, we see that in the scriptures, it talks about some distinction. But the whole idea is reunification of body and soul. And Jesus is the first fruits of this. Resurrection. That's what's being talked about here. That's what's happening. And this was not some kind of foreign idea or foreign concept for Jewish thinkers. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, And into verse 3, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those who sleep will come to life. In Ezekiel chapter 37, I know we're digging into like the deep chambers of scripture here. Listen to this. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'll open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people. I'll bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. And when I open your graves and rise, you from your graves, O my people, and I'll put my spirit within you. You shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. There was in Israel this anticipation that a resurrection was actually going to come and happen. In the 18th benediction, what is that? Well, these things that they would say one to another. Devout Jews would pray three times a day, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who revivest the dead. There's always been in the ancient Israeli concepts this idea that resurrection would happen. In fact, when Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus dies and Jesus delays his coming and they come pleading their costume and they say, Jesus, Jesus, if you would have been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. And Jesus goes, don't worry, I'm going to take care of this. And Martha Honestly, in faith and drawing from her theological background, says, oh, we know that he'll rise in the resurrection someday. But, but you could have delayed that now. And there's this theology that is all around the scriptures of resurrection. But this is going to be an incredibly surprising event for the disciples. So much so was there a theology around this. Actually, Monica and Michael were sharing this with me in some notes. And I'm going to show this picture up here. This is a picture of Jerusalem today. The Jewish tombs are intentionally prepared for the resurrection. They're intentionally pushed that direction in this set. Israel, I know it's intriguing stuff. Israel has this concept of resurrection but they're in awe, dismay, and shock when Jesus resurrects. Why? Why is this so important? A few things, and we'll finish out here this morning. As we look at this and we ask, what's going on? Uh, Much like Jesus' ministry and the way that he came to earth, 
Yes, the incarnation, but in the way that he didn't conquer as they wanted. See, the Jews really wanted Jesus or whoever their Messiah was going to be to overthrow Rome and to establish his kingdom on their terms. We want a king, we want a king now, we want a king to look this way. And when Jesus actually had a more subversive way of doing things, laying down his life to give life, they're dismayed and put off and want nothing to do with this Jesus. And that's why as we looked at Good Friday, they say, crucify him. He's not our king. He's not what we want. Do away with this man. We're still looking for another Messiah. Much like their disappointment in who Jesus and his ministry was, There was not this anticipation or expectation that Jesus would rise from the dead and be the first fruits of the resurrection. And so when he comes, they're shocked and they're wondering, what does this all mean? Because they were not looking for it. Because we have lack of time, we won't read all of this next passage. But as Luke's narrative continues, you see him walking Jesus with these men on the road to Emmaus. And he says, what's wrong with you guys? And we're following this Jesus. I don't know, it just didn't work out. He didn't do what we wanted him to do. And this person, unbeknownst to them, who is Jesus, begins talking to them and pointing to them, all things pointing to himself in the scriptures. And there he sits down and he breaks bread with them and their eyes are opened and they're shocked, they're surprised. And they go, whoa. Whoa, that was him. And they run and go tell the other disciples. They're shocked. They're blown away. They were shocked about this resurrection and the way in which it happened. Now, what does that mean for us? First of all, when we consider the resurrection, we can't escape the things or events that happened just prior to that, which were the crucifixion. There on the cross where atonement was made for sin, where the grave is conquered, in the resurrection, but Jesus dies. Jesus is put to death and bled out for us so atonement can happen. That's a very important part of the crucifixion to resurrection story. And as a church, we need to have volume turned up on that, saying, this is what Jesus has done. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? Truly, is that I have deficiencies in my life. I don't need people to write me letters to tell me what's wrong with me. (laughs) Oh, it's happened. I've heard you. I get it. I know it. I feel it. And this is where atonement comes in. This God that loves us has forgiven us, cares for us, has given himself for us. But that's not all what this whole thing is about. It's a huge portion of it, but there's this other knob we need to turn up. And N.T. Wright really highlights this, and he says, we cannot divorce kingdom from cross. Here's what he says. The gospel writers themselves, there is never a kingdom message without a cross, and Jesus' crucifixion never carried a meaning divorced from the launching of God's kingdom. Now, for many people, this is what they know about Jesus because they come to church a couple times a year. They know about his incarnation, We celebrate it every single Christmas. We tell the story as Advent leads up to it. Jesus came and we look at it from different angles and facets. It's fascinating, brilliant, and I love the story of the incarnation. And then what happens is, is six months later, we come back to church and and we hear about the resurrection. But I don't know if y'all know this, 
there's a lot that happened between those two events. I mean, there's a lot of pages. And at this church, we spent a long time looking at Matthew, discussing what those middle sections were about. And what they are about is Jesus bringing his kingdom now, even as we pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth. As it is in Your kingdom come down. Your kingdom invade this space. Your kingdom come into this place. How is that going to happen? How is that going to take place? It's through the cross and the transformative acts where Jesus resurrects and then gives us his life. And he says, now you are kingdom people here and now, participating in what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, practicing his way. And here's the cool thing. We're not just a bunch of people who hang around here with our arms crossed and on Sundays we lift them up and sing some songs and then go back through our week with our arms crossed getting through the week until Jesus returns. That's how a lot of people view Christianity. It's really just this escapism. You're hanging around until God comes and whisks you away at some point or you die. But if we actually understand the story of God, it's his kingdom coming now, invading this place and we are participating in it. There's this whole middle part of the scriptures, of the gospels, that he's calling us to actually participate in, and we can't lose sight of that. So as we look at the resurrection, we can walk away with three things. First and foremost, Jesus' victory over death and evil. Love this. You hear this this morning. It's kind of recapping. This is the atonement the what happened. If you want to, you can flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to just look at a few verses here, 20 through 26. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ's first fruits, then is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I got good news for you today. Your greatest enemy in here your greatest enemy in here is not a political party. Your greatest enemy in here is not your neighbor, your spouse, or your parents, or your kids. Your greatest enemy in here is, is death. I'm going to tell you that now. It's death. And it's coming for everybody. But what does the scriptures declare here? Paul goes on and he beautifully writes, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? As an Anglican priest, pastor, George Herbert, in one of his poems, he said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. See, as a Christian, This is hope. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to give you some hope here this morning. There's a lot wrong with you. There's a lot wrong with me. If you want to hang out, I'll tell you all about it. I know it. 
thought wrong. But our biggest fear is this unknown that we step into of death and what happens. And here we're told it's not an executioner. No, but we're planted and there's going to be something that grows from it. In fact, Herbert says, when I realize what God has done for me in the gospel, when I realize Jesus has taken my sin for me, he's taken my punishment, when I meet death, all death can do, he's the gardener. He plants me to make me something wonderful. He plants me as a seed, and I come up a gorgeous flower. Jesus has conquered the grave, and he has risen. This gives you and me hope that we will rise with him. I'm telling you that. This is a narrative you can latch your life onto. You can hold when times are tough, when life feels like it's caving in on you and you think, is anything ever going to go right? Is everything always going to happen to me in such a terrible, hard way? And it just feels like my life is crumbling. What do I have to hold on to? And you're writing a script, you're writing a narrative of death, destruction, and pain. And Jesus calls you into his story and he says, take on my life. And no, it may not be easy, it may be hard and difficult, but as you trust me and walk with me, the thing that we fear most, oh, it's not bad because I'm going to raise you. You will rise like I have. And I did it first. I did it first. That's important. The second thing that we see in here about the resurrection, it's the source of life and power now. It's a new way of living. In 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In Revelation 21, I am making all things new. This is a calling to walk in the life that God has called us. This life that will be, he says, I want you to take it into the moment now. And I want you to live as the people of God, serving orphans and widows and caring for them. Practicing the very things that are laid out in scripture. In your place of work, causing flourishing and goodness to come, not destruction and death and pain and ripping people off, but I want you to take the very things that you put your hand to and cause goodness to flow from them. We as Christians, empowered by the Spirit, living in a much different way in the workforce is a calling that God has put on you. The way you raise your family, the way you love your spouse, I'm calling you. And this is the life now that we get to participate in. And finally... There is a promise, a future hope for the whole world. This is good news for you all. Now, we've kind of alluded to this, and we've shown this slide before, and it's a lot of fun, but a lot of people's idea of heaven and earth looks something like this behind me. This idea of here's earth and our space, and here's heaven, and here's God's space, and here's this great gap, and I'm going to jump over into heaven or be taken up into that space at some point. But we like to put a big red X on that. Instead, in Galatians, the scriptures talk about a restored heaven and earth. Heaven come down. God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign. And it looks more like this slide, where there's an overlapping of heaven and earth. And we don't have to wait until that day to participate in it. You have been given the Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, to live, to walk, to act, behave, participate in a different way, to change the world around us.
This is what we're called to. You have been saved if you're in Christ. You're toned. But he's calling you then to walk in that and work it out in fear and in trembling. And it's an invitation into his life. What's wrong with me? A lot. A lot. Is there hope, though? Absolutely. There's a God who said, I love you. I bled out for you. I died for you. And I want to get in your life and reorder it and change everything about it. That's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love today. As the scriptures declare, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we know on our own, our own righteousness is not enough. It's as filthy rags. But that you've made us whole, that you've made us new, and that you delight in us. And we delight in you and we get to walk with you. I pray that we would live that reality out in our homes, in our town, in the places that we go. And they'd be so influenced and changed by the Spirit. Because the gospel, that good news of Jesus has gotten into our lives. That we participate walking in your kingdom now. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen.